Welcome to Seniority Authority. I'm your host, Kathleen Toomey, and I track down experts to answer your questions on aging. Let's get smarter about growing older. Is it just me, or do you find it hard to know what to say or do when someone dies? It's the most profound loss, and it happens to all of us. So why aren't we better at comforting each other? One of my goals with this podcast is to bring to light the new research and ideas about aging and to encourage people to approach aging with more optimism, appreciation, and curiosity. But let's face it, death, like aging, happens to all of us. You can't exercise, mediate, diet, or socially connect your way out of dying and mourning those you love and those that you have lost. So how can we help those who are newly bereaved or ourselves? Stay tuned for my next guest to find out. Thanks to our sponsor, The Riverwoods Group, Northern New England's largest family of nonprofit retirement communities, where active adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. Visit riverwoodsgroup.org. Now, let's hear from today's guest. Welcome to Seniority Authority. I'm your host, Kathleen Toomey. Today's episode topic is thanks to a listener suggestion, a listener who asked to hear more about grief. And I did my research to find today's guest, who is an expert in the field of bereavement. Dr. Tony Miles is a fellow in the Gerontological Society of America and is on the faculty of the University of Georgia College of Public Health. She received both her MD and PhD from Howard University and is recognized as a national expert on chronic health epidemiology, gerontology, and bereavement. Dr. Miles has researched the topic of bereavement since 2012, and her work and resulting guidelines and policies are used by a number of advocacy groups. Her team has created and disseminated a Best Practices in Bereavement Care, which has been distributed widely. She's a frequent speaker and trainer of healthcare professionals on the topic of bereavement and was recently quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Miles, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. As we discussed prior to the show, our goal today is to share some of the wisdom and learnings that you gained from your decade of studying the topic of bereavement and public health. For our discussion, the focus will not be on how you can help and train healthcare staff, which is critical and which is what you do, but translating your understanding of bereavement so that individuals, our listeners, can put that into practice. And first, we have to start out by just hearing how you chose to focus on this area of health in particular. So I want to say thank you, Kathleen, for having me this morning. You're um, welcome. Giving me a chance to share the wealth, because research doesn't matter if no one knows that you've done it and what you found out. So back in 2012, I just joined the School of Public Health here in University of Georgia and didn't see a real solid connection between what's happening in aging and what's happening in public health. You would think that was would be a natural fit, but it wasn't. Sure. And so I, I spent the better part of a year thinking about how those two fields would overlap. And in the meantime, I had a few conversations with friends on in both worlds and a woman named Diane Meyer, who some people in your audience would know. We all realized that we as boomers are losing friends and family. I mean, lots of them. 
Mm-hmm. And so public health is really focused on mortality prevention. But those of us in geriatrics and gerontology, there's also the end game. And so then I started working on how, where the intersection was. And so that's how I got into this area of health. Interesting. Well, as we all know, COVID-19 is thrown a bright light on bereavement as we have all been rocked by the number of deaths in this pandemic that is continuing in different iterations. One thing that you said in our prior conversation that really struck me is that, quote, everyone counts the dead, no one counts the bereaved. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, Sure. And I don't mean that to be flip, but it's absolutely the case. In public health, we count the number of people who die each year. There's about 7,700 people die every day from a variety of causes. Many of them are older adults because we use that to design policies, preventions, and all that other good stuff. But we don't know that one death injures a bunch of people who are Mm -hmm. connected to that person in a bunch of ways. And so the conversation with Dr. Meyer basically brought that to my mind. We really don't know how one person in their social network affects the health and well-being of all the people around them. So I've been trying to get, you'll like this story, if I give me two more seconds. Sure. Um, the CD, I finally got the Georgia Department of Public Health to add two questions on recent bereavement to their survey. They do an annual survey. It's called Behavior Risk Factor Surveillance Survey, BRFSS for short. BRFSS is what you'll hear me call it. And they did. You know, we got some money from the Retirement Research Foundation. This was all brand new stuff. Wow. And so we now have an accounting in Georgia of the number of people who lost someone in 2018 and 2019. Wow. So now you are starting in Georgia to count the bereaved because you're right. One person passes away. It's a huge ripple that rocks people both close to them and people who are more tangential. One of the things we've been talking about in this podcast is how important it is to have a social network in order to live a long, happy and healthy life. But That also means when you pass away, that social network is rocked by your passing. Yes. And that connection is not fully appreciated until you start counting people who are bereaved. Mm -hmm. So yes. It all starts with numbers, right? It goes back to the little prince. You know, adults understand (laughs) things with numbers. Um, Right. That's right. Some listeners in this audience, in our audience, would assume that most bereaved people are older adults. In your research, is that accurate? That was the first fallacy we blew away, totally blew away. And it made, on reflection, we could see why that was happening. Keep in mind, we're focusing on the people who die within the 24 months before we talk to the participants in the survey. Those people are between the ages of 25 and 55. Wow. They're young. They, they hold up the sky for all of us. So if, if you're talking to someone, you know, they may be a caregiver. They may have friends, the folks who are in the upper range of that age band, have friends who are beginning to have their health events. All kinds of stuff happens and their parents are dying. So that's the age group that's being rocked the most by treatment. Wow. 
That's very interesting. And did you find, have you researched, is there a difference in how younger people experience bereavement compared to more experienced adults? Is there a difference between the 25-year-olds and the 55-year-olds? Well, okay. So let me let me backtrack just a little bit because we haven't distinguished between grief and bereavement. Oh, very important. Very important. Grief is how you feel about the person that died. Bereavement is the fact that someone in your orbit has died. It's verifiable from a research perspective. That's really a critical thing. And many of the surveys in the United States have actually gone so far as to talk to people to verify that the death they're reporting actually happened. So bereavement, we're talking about whether you cared about that person or you hated their guts. (laughs) Their death has implications for you. So to try to paraphrase what you're saying, Is grief the feeling and bereavement is the process? It's the event that lands you there. Okay. So so the young adults are just starting to see the edges of their network die off. They may not have had, you know, previous generations saw more of that. Uh, If you take someone who was like born in the 20s and the 30s, they saw infant mortality. Absolutely. They saw all kinds of deaths. We get offended, and rightly so, if a woman dies in childbirth. But Georgia is like the number one place in the nation for that happening. So part of it is the generational experience with witnessing the death of someone close or being knowledgeable about that. Somewhere in my research for another one of these interviews, I read something talking about a longevity. And it said that, you know, 100 years ago, if you were 20, you were more likely to not know your mother because your mother had died in childbirth versus today, if you're 20, you likely know your mother and your grandmother because they're both still alive. So yes, thank you, modern medicine. Right. That's a good thing. Nobody complaining about that. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. As we start out, I mentioned that often we don't know how to comfort the bereaved. Can you talk about your recommendations and all the work that you've done on how to support the person who is grieving, who is bereaved? Okay, so give you the background on how I came by this knowledge. We spent about a year and a half traveling around the state interviewing people who work in long-term care settings because they experience multiple episodes of this. Absolutely. And they have tips and tricks for helping. And so we that's where we get our best practices from. I'll talk about that probably later in the podcast. We also talked to residents of these places and their family members. So we got a full spectrum. And the, the number one thing they all said, don't tell me you know how I feel. They hate that. So I'm going to tell you what not to say first. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> because that was the thing that caused the most anger. People think of a sadness with, with grief is also an angry component. So don't tell people you know how they feel. What you say is, I'm sorry for your loss. And then you sit quietly, which is what we're learning to do in the United States, and you listen to what they tell you. And you just let them talk without judgment, without Like one lady said she was ashamed that she was grieving the loss of some jewelry that she collected over the course of her career. She's a foreign service officer. She felt guilty about that. Grief is legitimate no matter what you're grieving. So supporting the idea that they can talk to you, sometimes just sitting by is something you can do. You can offer to bring them coffee if they're coffee drinkers. You know, offering to do stuff is the best strategy we got across the board. 
Mm-hmm. So number one, don't say, I know how you feel because you don't, you're not that person. Even if you do, even if you have the same. It's like, it's like co-opting their grief to say, oh, I know how you feel. Exactly. I love that phrase. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that from you. Feel free. (laughs) Co-opt their grief because they need to express it. And you have been selected to hear it. Not everybody can express their grief to everybody else. That is true. And I also like your second recommendation, which is to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Pause. Let the uncomfortable silence build up so that if they want to say something to you, they can. If they don't, they know you are brave enough to sit with them when they are so emotional. Sometimes they just don't have the words. There are no words. And sometimes I say that too. I have no words. And that's also a welcome response. And I think that's important because I think so many of us avoid talk of death, avoid talk of end of life. And if someone dies, we avoid that person. And I think more people do that than not. And showing up and being present. And as you said, offering to do something practical. Here's a cup of coffee. Can I clean your living room for you? Can I cook you a meal? Can I take the kids back and forth to school? do something practical it was another act of love and act of support if you're getting smarter help us reach more minds leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts tell your friends to follow us on social or subscribe to our newsletter at senioritiauthority.org a word about meals true story from my own personal experience you know in the olden days People would come by the family home after the funeral and bring food, right? I don't know if it was like Mm -hmm. that in New Hampshire, but certainly in other places. I had the experience of receiving those food gifts as a daughter-in-law. So, you know, I was close, but it wasn't my brother. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the table full of food and I said, these people are trying to kill us. (laughs) (laughs) So the temper is be mindful of the healthy quality of the food that you bring. It doesn't have to be a salad. It can be comfort satisfying. But, you know, I saw greasy mac and cheese, salty ham, fried chicken. And, you know, that's going to be not a moving experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So be thoughtful in your meal gifts. Yes. So let's take another step and say, If you are the person who's experiencing bereavement, what recommendations do you have for that person who is experiencing that horrible loss? How do we climb out of that hole we're in? Again, it's going to be a personal kind of trip. I'm reminded of a statue that I saw. Someone I talked to sent me a photograph of a statue that had a giant hole in the middle. I know I felt that way. And it takes time for that hole to get small. And so the first and best thing you can do with yourself is be gentle. Or guilt is one of those things that people, that drives the bad grief feeling. Talk Um, a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? um, Well, all of us at one time or another may have the sense that we didn't do enough for the person that died. Ah. Maybe they needed more attention from us or they needed money from us. And there's a whole host of reasons why people talk themselves into feeling guilty. Oh, yes. I'm Irish Catholic, so I know that very well. (laughs) The spice of life, right? (laughs) The relationship you have with that person has changed. 
irrevocably. So all of that stuff has to go by the wayside. One of the people we interviewed, this one woman who was initially angry with her husband because she felt like he didn't try enough to live, had to give that up. And she talked about that process. She said one of the pieces of advice she got was imagine he's like jewels in your pocket, but he's not really gone. You can put your hand in your pocket, you can feel the jewels, and he's with you. And so that I found to be very comforting for me. So it, it's going to take a while for you to feel like you can smile when you think about that person. But eventually, if you can, you'll get, a, get to a point where you can remember the good stuff and sort of put the other not so good stuff in a little box and the box gets smaller and you put it in the background. That, that's a starting place for healing. Let's talk about if you are the person who is bereaved and grieving, let's talk about how the tendency, I would think, is to remain isolated and to eschew offers of connecting with other people and you just are upset and want to be alone and don't want to interact and don't want anyone to come near you. Number one, is that true? That's an assumption that I have. And number two, if that is true, how do you break that pattern or should you break that pattern? That's an excellent question. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, so the the research that we did basically says physical activity is one way to break that because not moving is not healthy for you. The things that really focused on is how bereavement increases your own risk of dying, of getting sick, not being able to sleep, and how you fix those things. Because ultimately, it's you who are going to have to work through your mindset and how you feel about things. So the other part of that, though, is other people have to help you. You get by with help from your friends. So if you have a friend that says, let's take a stroll, go with them. Even if you don't talk during the stroll, Walking will help reduce your own risk of dying. It cuts it in half. It cuts wow. it in half. Yes, I've never seen an effect that big, especially for people over 50. And those papers are out there. Okay, so let's put a pin in that walking, but let's go back to this research and statistic because you and I have talked about this. And this really shocked me, and I think our listeners need to hear this. So one statistic that came out of your research is that there's a much higher incidence of hospitalization among the newly bereaved, up to 45%. So number one, tell us a little bit about that, that research, and was that as surprising to you as it is to me? It was. I mean, we all hear these stories, right? One spouse dies and the other one dies of a broken heart. It's so romanticized, but that is a real, measurable, tangible outcome of being bereaved and can come about not only from the emotional stuff, but if you've been staying at home caregiving and you don't have health insurance and you get sick until the Affordable Care Act came along, you had no pathway to get insurance to take care of the health care that you might need. I mean, I, I really focus on pragmatic, the practical things. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I even tried to do was get the health navigators to talk to folks who are dealing with families in hospice, because that is a real phenomenon. There are many, many women who are not old enough for Medicare. This is why it's important to know that younger people are affected by this. Sure. Because their pathway to healthcare and access is different from older adults. I, I know I went around the world on that, but 
that hospitalization and provider access is really critical in that moment. And it makes sense. So if you are newly bereaved and you are not taking care of yourself, you're 45% more likely to end up in the hospital. And the same research suggests that if you do something as simple as walk with a friend, it cuts that down dramatically. That is absolutely the takeaway message. And you have a phrase for that called walking the bereaved, correct? Mm -hmm. I tried to get a, a clinical trial of that going because I think that's something we can all do. And if your friend tells you to go away when you go to see about them, it's not personal. They're grumpy. We've all dealt with grumpy people. You just circle back and say, how about today? How about next week? You just keep at it until they go, okay, I'll walk with you. And anyone can do that. You can do it in a mall. It's not the most beautiful place, but if you're in Alaska and it's winter or in New Hampshire and it's snowing, you can go inside, walk in a mall. You can walk with someone in a wheelchair or on a walker in a mall in a safe place. Obviously, the best place to do it is in nature, outside, that fresh air and that connection to nature. And it's something that doesn't cost any money. You can do it anytime it's safe, not at night probably, because you could trip and fall, but that's a really good recommendation as to what you can do with someone who is bereaved is even more than that mac and cheese casserole. Come back again and again and again and say, can you walk with me? Can you walk with yep. me? And the nice thing about it is it not only improves your overall movement, but you'll likely sleep better. And insomnia is one of those things that's associated, even though we say, well, of course, it's normal not to be able to sleep after a loss. That starts to overturn that tendency. And we all know Shakespeare says sleep knits the ragged sleeve of care. That is so true. And for those older adults or those more experienced adults, insomnia is part of life anyway. It gets harder to have a better night's sleep. So when you are bereaved and upset, that makes it more complex. But getting that physical exercise will absolutely help. None of us can avoid grief or bereavement. It's part of love and life. But if you had a practical suggestion for people to do well in advance of ill health that might help, what would that be? If you are old enough to have the foreknowledge to plan, planning helps everybody around you. This is the moment where you start to think about the people who are left behind and you start caring for them in their bereavement. So talking about your own passing is not morbid <laughs> and not bad, doesn't have to be tense. And I will tell you, my, my mother-in-law bought a plot. She bought a headstone. She bought a casket and it was so helpful to us. We pulled out her playbook and there it was. Oh, she had a playbook for her death. Now that is a radical idea. It's very common among Southern elderly women. Really? That's a tradition. Yes. And why is that? You don't want your family to be taken advantage of. If you've ever seen family members fight over stuff, I want this candelabra. Just specify it as you would like it. And then you, you save everybody else the pain of arguing about stuff. Yeah, because it absolutely is a gift. I think it's particularly ripe. When someone has just passed away, everyone is dealing with their own grief and anger 
and sadness. And it's hard for it to come out sometimes as sadness. It's easier for it to come out as anger. So you're just at that kind of tipping point where if another family member does something that you don't agree with, it's like lighting that powder keg. So it's a particularly ripe opportunity for family strife. That splits that will last for years. Yeah. So yeah, you tell people what you want, how you would like for them to behave. That is the context in which I often approach the groups I'm talking to about advanced care planning. In Georgia, we call it the Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment Post. It is a way to keep your children from feeling guilty about not having done enough for you. You tell them, I better not wake up on a ventilator or I'm going to haunt you forever. You know, <laughs> And it doesn't, like, my daughter and I have these conversations because I'm old enough now. And she's okay with that. It makes her feel better. She will know that she is doing what I would want her to do and living how I would want her to live. Okay. So let's get down to brass tacks. At what age should you have this conversation and make these plans? It's not an age thing. If you haven't started that conversation, well, Easter weekend is a great time to do that. (laughs) You know, for those of you who are celebrating Easter, and if you're not, you know, just, it's like, Those of us who had kids and we were teaching them about sex, it's age appropriate to them when they're five and they ask you, do women have periods? And does it hurt? You say, magical powers, they can bleed without pain. (laughs) You know, you do the conversation in bits. And then over an arc of time, everybody in the family comes to understand that's your perspective on things. So that it's not an age related thing is what happens is I think as you get older and you've seen more death, you become more comfortable with talking about it. Sure. And sometimes a family gathering, Passover, Easter, any holiday, or if you go to a funeral or a burial or a memorial service, you can say, hey, this is what I don't want, or this is what I want. That's a naturally occurring time. To have that conversation. When you're having that post-funeral drink fest, yeah, back to that uh, in a second. Um, Yeah, that's a good time to talk about it because you want it to be heard and memorable. And I would add to that that it's not enough just to have it heard. You need to write it down, especially if you have more than one child or more than one person who cares about it because everyone will think they understand what you want and no one really knows unless you write it down. Absolutely. Thank you for making that point. I will say the Jehovah's Witnesses, I normally don't call out religious groups for their actions, but they sit down with their advanced directive. They have advanced directive cards. And they sit down as a group and they work them out. So everybody in the group knows what Mr. So-and-so wants. Oh, Um, okay. That's That's interesting. And they model that behavior for their young adults. Now, here's where young adults and older adults really differ. Young adults want to have these conversations and thought processes as a group. Older adults want to go in a corner somewhere (laughs) and be by themselves. Right. So that really is, and I think that that's a stage of life. And I think it doesn't matter as long as you do it, right? If it's the doing it, that's the important thing. It's the doing it. Now, the other thing you got to be ready for, though, if you have like four or five kids, one of them, you may not be the child that's most preferred as the person who executes this plan. 
And you got to put your feelings in a bag somewhere Mm -hmm. and set that off to the side because the person who's making the decisions for themselves is going to want someone they trust to execute them, not execute them, but you get the idea. Yeah. To carry out what the plan is. And if you can't get, then you'll know if there's no one in your family who could do that. Because that's a legitimate thing. Then you find a friend. I mean, you you can't pick your family, but you can pick your nose. Some joke like that. Yeah, yeah. You have to pick someone who the family knows they have to listen to and will do things as you want them. That is so true. We have another, I have another podcast interview with Dick Edwards, who's a Mayo Clinic executive, and he talks a lot about family dynamics. And one of the things that he says is you have to realize what child has what role and accept that. So if there is a certain child that is preferred or preferred for these things, this is not the time to argue. This is not the time to start the favorite child Olympics all over again. You just got to accept where you are, especially if it's clear what your parents have designated. Yeah. And then your role as a sibling becomes supporting that person. Yeah. And this extends not to end of life, but caregiving. If they have picked the person that you think is least knowledgeable about caregiving to be their caregiver, then you have to help that person. I completely agree. In your work, you created a toolkit called Best Practices in Bereavement Care that was initially designed for the long-term care communities where you did your initial research. And I'm really thrilled that you have agreed to share a link to that so people can find that in the show notes. If you are interested in reading it, you can download it on your own. How was this Best Practices Toolkit received by your audience in Georgia? Well, they helped to create it. That's the wonderful thing. I learned a lot from listening to people who are at the bedside. The the direct care workers here, we call them CNAs. Those people are angels. And it really bothers me that they got beat up on during COVID because they're on the front lines in a way it's difficult to imagine. So the best practices come from their experiences. Awesome. That is great to know. So this toolkit is created by people who are in the trenches doing this day in and day out. Death is part of their everyday experience. I think that's so smart. Yeah. And the the thing to appreciate is that you don't get over it. (laughs) They hate that phrase. Mm -hmm. You hate that phrase. And you don't want someone taking care of you who doesn't feel something at the passing. You want a human response. And so These, um, mostly women, but a few guys, they have outlined, I mean, how do you deal with the moment of a thing happening is where we all started the conversation. And so it's, I'm grateful to them. Well, and I've looked at it. It's very, very good, very helpful. So I would urge you to download that link. We have had a fantastic conversation today. It's been so inspiring. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Any final words of wisdom? The only thing I would say that we didn't talk about is when someone actually passes, stay off of social media until the person who really needs to know first knows. Yes. So much injury caused by Facebook tweets, Instagram, stay off of that stuff until the spouse knows if it's a spousal thing. You know, social media is not so social at that moment. That is very good reminder is this is not the time to be the first to let the world know. 
Well, Dr. Miles, thank you so much for being here today, for sharing your wisdom. As I said, this is something that I have had. I've been looking for you for a while, so I'm thrilled that you're able to do this for me and share this great wisdom with folks. That's our show for today. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about us so we can reach more minds. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to send me your questions on aging so I can find super smart people like Dr. Miles. Until next time, enjoy the chance to get smarter about growing older. That's our show for today. Did it spark a question? If so, send it to us at senioritiauthority.org and we'll track down the answer. Don't forget to subscribe, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and also rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, let's get smarter about growing older.